morning, everybody. I'm, I'm just going to call us to, I won't say call us to order, but I guess we're not in court. But anyway, <laughs> gather us together. Uh, it's my great delight to, um, for us to begin the forum series, the Rector's Forum series for this year, which has the theme for the city. And the reason for that theme is that, theme is that we might explore through the course of this year uh, ways by which what we might, how we might learn and be formed uh, might help us uh, live out what we learn in our life in this uh, city in metropolitan Atlanta. So we're beginning that series today on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend with Greg Cole. And as I mentioned, if you were there in the early service, uh, Greg is, of course, a parishioner here and also the executive director of Emmaus House. Greg will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes or so, then I'll uh, engage him in some questions and invite you to engage him in some questions also. Greg, we're so glad you're here with us. Thank you, it's great to be here. Hi, everybody. It's a, it really is a privilege. I've been coming to this church for six years, Stacy and I have, and um, standing in at the pulpit uh, earlier, I have to tell you that the look, looking out at the congregation is a lot more intimidating than looking up at the clergy and choir. <laughs> but you also see things in a very different light. It's really beautiful from that perspective, the, the angels and the trumpets up there, and, and somehow that just was as an inspiration. And when Simon called me in December and asked me if, if I would do this, of course I was very excited about it, and I thought it's a great time to talk about a mass house and, and to share what, what we do down there. And then I read in the bulletin that I was going to be there to, sp to talk on the legacy of Martin Luther King. And then I got really nervous. I was like, there's so many people in Atlanta who have great things to say about the legacy of Martin Luther King who know so much more than I do. But I got to thinking about it and, and thinking about how, how critically the Emmaus House is connected to the movement of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement that it seemed like an okay thing for me to do. So I want to start by something that I know all of us are, most of us will be pretty familiar with, and that's the um, Martin Luther King's um, six steps of, uh, to nonviolent non resistance. And it seemed to me as I was reading through these that they are as important and valuable today as they were back when he wrote them in the 60s. And, and I'll just read them really quickly for you, and then I want to talk about one of them. Um, so, King's Principles of Nonviolent Resistance. Number one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. That's not the one I was going to comment on, but I'm going to. So, think about what that, what that really means. And you think about um, what Dr. King did, you think about um, John Lewis standing on the bridge, you know, standing with it, bodily standing and resisting the forces of evil in a nonviolent way, not willing to strike back. And think about the courage that that took and the force of conviction that he had to have and that so many other people had during the civil rights movement. And then I think about today. And I think, you know, I, I embrace the idea of love and, and love conquering hate and, and so on. But then I think about, do, do I have or would I have the courage to literally put my life on the line for what I believe? Would I have the courage to stand up and to be beaten for what I believe? And I, I mean, I'd love to say that, yes, I would do that, but who knows until you're actually in that position what you would really do. But it's worth thinking about 
what it means for us to, to think about the legacy of Dr. King and so many other people who had that tremendous courage and then to, to, to just pause and contemplate what it might mean for us to embrace that same sense of courage. That nonviolence is not about hiding in a corner somewhere. That nonviolence is putting your life on the line and standing up for what you believe. Second principle, nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. Nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. And nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. So it's that fifth one that struck me as well, that nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. And again, that seems like an easy thing to say, right? We're, we're Christians. We're supposed to believe in love. We're supposed to believe that God loves us and that we're called to love other people. But the difficulty with that one, or the struggle that I have with that one, is that he went on to say in that principle that nonviolence resists violence of the spirit as well as of the body. And that means that when I tweet something or, I, or I'm on Facebook or any, any way that I communicate, that I have to think about, am I doing violence to another person? If I'm exhibiting road rage and I shake my fist or something else at somebody, am I doing violence to that person? Am I going against that principle of nonviolence that King spoke about? And I also took it a step further to think about the work that, that we do at a Mass House. So we do social service work, we do education work with children, we do a lot of things. And over 52 years, we've, we've done a lot of um, what we might call charity work, right? And there's a real movement in our world these days, and it has been for a while, to think about the, what we mean by charity. Because a lot of times, when we do charity work, we're doing something to people. And, and a lot of times, when we do to, something to people, as, as well-meaning as, as we might be, sometimes we're, act, we're committing acts of violence against them because we're doing more harm to them than good. We're treating them sometimes like objects to be served rather than people to walk alongside. So that, that fifth statement in, or fifth principle of nonviolence really... I try to let it inform the work that we do at Emmaus House so that we are not committing acts of violence against people even as we seek to help them. That rather we, we try to walk, uh, walk beside them, to walk with them, to recognize that we're all pilgrims on the same journey with difference, um, different means and different resources, but that at the end of the day, we're all there together. And that seems to me a better way to minimize the, the, the threat of violence in our work as, as compassionate human beings. So moving on from, from that, one of the things that, that Simon and I talked about was the Poor People's Campaign, which was, happened in 1968. And there was a, we all know that, that Dr. King, at, at, at one point in, in his career and his, in his work, um, started to shift his em emphasis a little bit from, from thinking specifically about civil rights to talking about um, human rights, to talking about poverty. And he also um, was very engaged, at, again, as we know, in, in the anti-war movement and against the, the war in Vietnam. But it was his movement towards poverty that was really, really defined the second half or the, the, at least the end part of his career. 
And one of the reasons that he moved in that direction is that he recognized that with the, the gains in civil rights that, were, that had happened since, in, during that time um, had, not, had not really helped improve the economic situation of African-American people. And he also recognized that there were vast numbers of other people who lived in poverty. So he tried to bring people together, not just African-American people, but Hispanic people and Asian people, people of, of all races who were in this country to move towards um, eliminating poverty. And so the, the um, Poor People's Campaign was actually a movement that, that um, he and the, the FCLC um, instigated to actually go and set up a tent city in, on the mall in Washington. And so about, and unfortunately, um, Dr. King was assassinated before it actually happened. And so um, Ralph Abernathy took over for him and they went and they had his tent city to draw attention to poverty. And he, they had, um, they had what they, they, what they fought for was the, what they called an economic bill of rights. And at that time that meant $30 billion, annual, $30 billion in annual appropriation for a real war on poverty, on congressional passage of full employment and guaranteed income legislation, and construction of 500,000 low-cost housing units per year until slums were eliminated. Before he died, Dr. King said about this movement, he said, we need to, we, he, said, he said that we need to say, we are here, we are poor, we don't have any money, and you have made us this way and we've come to stay until you do something about it. So it's really in the context of that movement, that movement to focusing on poverty that Emmaus House was born. And I have a feeling I'm using up my time here, but um, so Emmaus House was founded by Father Austin Ford. And Father Ford was a rector of a church um, in the city and he was, was very engaged in, in the civil rights movement and really agitating um, and pushing the Diocese of Atlanta to, um, to respond differently to what was happening in, in with regard to race in our city. And the kind of the, the straw that broke the metaphorical camel's back was when one of our Episcopal school, private schools um, turned down the application of Martin Luther King III um, to attend that school and then s created written policies to make it so that people, um, African Americans, couldn't attend that school. Well, Father Ford wasn't very happy about that. When uh, he died this past summer and his funeral was at the cathedral and um, Dean Candler spoke and he said something to the effect of, we're here today to celebrate the life of a man who, used, who at one time stood on these very steps protesting the diocese and the cathedral. So Father Ford was a real agitator and the bishop at that time asked him, because he knew that Father Ford cared and was passionate about this, asked him if he would uh, move into the city and, and do something, whatever that might be. And so Father Ford moved to Peoplestown. The diocese bought a building um, that, as I understand, it was in absolutely horrible condition. It was what they called back then a flop house, and it was a $2 a night house, and it was full of junk and dirt and grime. And uh, he and uh, a, a Catholic nun named Sister Marie and some volunteers from um, Pope Pius X Catholic School came and cleaned it out and made it livable so that Father Ford could move in there. 
And he moved in there, and he started just doing stuff. I mean, that's the elegant way to put it, I know. Um, but just doing whatever he could to be helpful. He loved to garden, so he started beautifying the, the neighborhood or the, the block where the, where the house was. And he started having kids come and, and tutoring them after schools. And he started taking, driving a bus down to the Reedfield prison so that people could, could see their, um, their loved ones who were incarcerated. He, he fed people. And so out of that drew, um, drew this movement in, in Peoplestown. And so in, in 1973, they founded um, what they called the Poverty Rights Office. And the Poverty Rights Office, um, the intention there was to educate people in the community about their rights as people who lived in poverty. And so there was this whole movement of Father Ford taking people or leading people down to the State House and City Hall to protest and to work towards um, equity and, and fairness for all people. And it was really a movement that was about em embracing the strengths of the people in the community themselves. It wasn't about Father Ford doing, some, doing stuff for the people. It was about him lifting them up so that they could have their own voice. So here we are 52 years later, um, still doing the work down in the south side of Atlanta. And, and I wanted to mention just briefly, the, some of you will know this, that the United, Way has, the United Way of Atlanta has what they call a child well-being index. And there are, there are um, some, some measures that they use to come up with a well-being index for each zip code in the greater Atlanta area. And, and some of the, the metrics that they use are for children, low birth weights, um, students who exceed third grade reading standards, um, students exceeding eighth grade math, et cetera, et cetera, um, families not, that are not financially stable, number of family or percentage of families with housing cost burden, and other, other metrics to determine the well-being of the community as well. And the regional score for all of greater Atlanta, for the region, is 58.9 out of 100. Just as a point of reference, in 30304 and 30305, um, which are north of us and slightly more affluent than, than we are in Peoplestown, the score is 93.7. In Erico 30315, where, where Peoplestown is, it's 23.9. I mean, it's really bad. And so that's the context in which Emmaus House does its work. Should I stop there and you can ask questions or should I just keep going? I've got a couple minutes. Um, so one of, the, one of the reasons I mentioned that, that United Way score is that, that I, I, wanted, I wanna put the, con the, put the work that Mass House does within the context of um, a much larger, larger picture. That we at Mass House don't act alone that we, we work with many partners and, and there are many people who are and organizations who are working really hard um, to, to help to move the needle on this index. And I see Kyle, my friend Kyle Wade is here. He's the, the CEO at the Food Bank, Atlanta Community Food Bank. And certainly the, the Food Bank is um, doing tremendous things to help to lift up that, that score and to, to help people all over our city. And we have a, a wonderful partnership with the Food Bank and um, a couple of years ago, they, they made an investment in, in our work in Peoplestown so that we could scale up our food pantry. And um, that's been a kind of a process over the last couple of years. But last year, we were able to, to deliver about 100,000 pounds worth of food 
um, to the people in, in Peoplestown and, and surrounding neighborhoods. So we're, we're really excited about the work we're able to do. But that's just an example of, of the partnerships that we try to form so that we can help move this needle for people all over our city, but specifically for us on the south side um, of Atlanta. So just a couple of, of the things that, that we're doing. Um, Ann Fowler, my colleague, is here this morning. She's our director of education. And um, four years ago, we, we recognized that, um, and I mentioned this in the sermon, that, that third grade reading levels um, are, are extremely low in that part of the city. And you may know that third grade reading levels are a predictor of uh, not only high school graduation rates, but also rates of incarceration. So if you cannot read at, at, on grade level by third grade, then the, the odds literally are against you. Two years ago at the Barack and Michelle Obama Academy, which is the elementary school in Peoplestown, 9% of third graders could read on level. Just think about that for a minute, 9%. That's horrible. And so we, in consultation with, with some other partners, um, decided we wanted to do our part to help with that. And so we, we went to, and, and Anne was really the driving force behind this, um, went to the Children's Defense Fund, um, which is run, founded and, and is run by Marion Wright Edelman, and talked to them about starting a Freedom Schools program at Emmaus House. The Freedom School program is, is designed um, to do a lot of things, but one of them is to help children not to experience um, reading loss during the summer, the so-called summer slide. And so we did the, the work of, of creating the only Freedom School in this state. And the first year we did it um, on our campus, and um, we had, the first year we had 70, I think. We had 70 students. And then the second year, we had 100 students, which was way too many on our, on our campus. So we went back to 70 students the third year. Um, and we did pre and post testing of some of the students, not all the students. But we found that with the, the students that we worked with in, the, in that six-week program, 85% of them either maintained or gained in their reading level during the summer. So we were indeed successful in, in, in um, combating that summer slide. And then last year, we had the really wonderful opportunity to, to partner with the Obama Academy and to actually hold the Freedom School program at the school. And they, they provided some resources, um, teachers, um, from reading instructors, um, a lot of other supports and wraparound services so that we could um, even increase the impact of that program. So this year, with a, with a grant from the Annie Casey Foundation, um, we're going to expand that program to 120 students. And so we're really, really excited about that. Um, Anne's a little nervous about it, I think. Um, but, um, but, but we're excited about it. So we have a lot going on. That, that's just, those are just two things. But I do want to stop, and, and we can hopefully Simon won't ask me something that I don't know the answer to. And uh, we'll go from there. So we're going to do our Oprah impression. We're going to come up on these very high stools, but oh my goodness, up you come. It's safe. I've been here before. <laughs> so I just have three questions, and I do want to open up to uh, the floor and see if other folks have questions. And there's a, a, a biblical mandate um, uh, from that troublesome character who doesn't make life easy called Jesus Christ. Um, and in fact, this is really um, 
uh, Jesus' teaching that, that Paul uh, gets a run with, that love might overcome hate. And um, I'm curious with that being in many ways a, a principle of Dr. King's work, and neither of us, uh, I think both of us feel equally nervous that we're neither of us are anywhere near, uh, we're scratching the surface of what we might know about Dr. King, but so it's a question about how you feel America's doing. Um, in, in your view, from your perspective of how are we doing with love overcoming hate? And I, I want to ask you that, not simply about what we might see in the news, not just a sort of national question or a cable news question, but maybe, uh, and I'm not trying to lead the witness, because <laughs> we may have an answer to that question Please already, <laughs> but I wonder if there's answers that you see locally that might just sort of uh, offer a bit more texture to that 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 challenge of love overcoming hate. You've got. You've got oh, sorry. <laughs> you mean I can't have two microphones? <laughs> so, um, th well, that's an interesting question because it, it's certainly true. If you if you just if you not do nothing else and watch the news, it seems like you know the world is going to hell, so to speak, and that um, that that hate is winning. But I don't think that's the case. And the more work that I do in in the parts of our city where there's need the more I see just tremendous numbers of people um, being generous with their money, with their time, with their talents, and we see it all over the place. I mentioned the, the food bank, and, and I can't imagine how many, how many people volunteer at the food bank um, every month because they know that feeding people is, is a way to demonstrate love. Um, we see it in, in people rallying, people parading, going and marching, and people standing up for, for equity and for justice and fairness. So I think that we, we may be in a moment, and I, and I hope that that's all it is, where, where it seems like division is, is, is kind of defeating um, our unity as, as human beings. But I don't think that that's the case. And it reminds me of, um, I think his name's Steven, Steve Pinker, who wrote a book, Enlightenment Now. And well, I didn't, I didn't agree with everything he said, but he does talk about the tremendous progress that we as human beings have made um, over the last century. Um, and you know, less people worldwide, far less people suffering from poverty in the world. Um, and just a, 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 a the, the longevity of peop people, li life longevity through medicine, just all kinds of ways that the world really is a better place. That's a good reminder that what we see on the evening news is not the whole story. One of the, it's, it's anecdotal, I don't have this uh, data, but, but I've heard that Atlanta may be among, or maybe near the top of the list of cities in America with the greatest income disparity. And uh, I w I'm curious from your perspective, uh, whether it is the theme of gentrification in, in your, your part of South Atlanta, Peoplestown and beyond, uh, or just more broadly in the metropolitan, what you see in our future in regards to that uh, that question of income disparity? Yeah, it's um, so where we are in in Peoplestown in the south side of Atlanta, we have um, two driving forces of gentrification. Um, on our north border is what used to be Turner Field, and so the redevelopment of that whole area. And if you've been there by there lately, if you're near the right across from the stadium, there's this huge building going up um, that's actually gonna be um, residence living for students. Um, but then on George Avenue, which is, which is that parallel or perpendicular street, um, 
there are all these pretty nice high-end restaurants and, and a brew pub and, and all these things going in. And then on our south border is the Beltline. And so one of the real fears in, in Peoplestown and Pittsburgh and Mechanicsville is that the people who've been there for years won't be able to stay there. And, and in fact, that's starting to happen, that, that displacement. And, and there's a history of displacement in that part of the city from when the, the interstate was built to Fulton County Stadium and the Olympics and, and Turner Field. All were, were, were forces of, of displacement for people. And so it's hard to imagine how we're going to lift up the incomes of, um, of poor people. I, d I don't think it's as, personally, I don't think that the problem is as much that rich people are getting richer, it's that, the it's that poor people aren't getting rich, aren't, aren't getting um, more money. And that, you know, rather than, than, than complain about um, wealthy people, we need to be help lifting up for people who don't have resources. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do at a mass house is to, um, we're not a job placement agency, but we're, in our case management, we work with people to get them to a point where they are ready to enter the, the workforce in a more meaningful way. And, and we we will pay for people's rent and, and provide food if they're in a job training program, for instance. Um, but we recognize that the only, really the only way out of poverty is to have a job with a, with a living wage. Mm -hmm. And so trying to raise the income um, that way instead of focusing on um, lowering it for the for the for people who have. I love that image of the genesis of a mayor's house, um, and and I don't know much about the backstory, but but credit to the diocese and the diocesan bishop that to take a challenge and say, okay, let's go and do something. That that in a very biblical uh, sort of motif of making a dwelling, go and make a dwelling with God's people. Um, I had the, the, the privilege just a couple of weeks ago to listen to President Carter teach Sunday school um, in Plains, Georgia. And he, it's, uh, it's, not, it's difficult not to take his challenge seriously. Uh, there's a, a, a man that has lived a life outside or after the Oval Office that has given itself away for others. And he said, what are you going to do to make a better life? What are you going to do to make a better life for yourself, for others? And um, one of the things I love about All Saints is that, I mean, just in the room today with yourself and Kyle, there's many people that have, that have sort of ways in for us as a community to, to offer our sort of service back to the city. I'm, I'm curious what you might encourage folks here to do to, that, that they might find a way, ways in which they might find a way to make a dwelling among those who are disenfranchised or live in poverty. Yeah, so we've, we've, I talked a little bit at the end of my sermon about um, ways to get proximate with, with folks who, who suffer from, from poverty or, or any other kind of, of discrimination. And, um, you know, in, in this very parish, you've got some tremendous avenues for that with um, the Covenant, Covenant House community and, and Threads and the refugee ministry. Um, and then in our diocese, if, if we so we're just just talking about the Episcopal Church ecosystem here in, in the diocese we've got a mass house we've got Church of the Common Ground and Holy Comforter and num another a number of other places where people can can invest their time and resources and volunteer and really walk side by side with people who live lives that are very different than the lives that most of us live um, but those are you know so those are some ways but 
I was thinking earlier that somebody who you know, works in an office building somewhere who doesn't have a lot of time to, to go and do those things, you know, sometimes it's just the little things, right? It's, and I was talking in the sermon about looking at the world using a lens of love. And so how do we look upon our, our, our colleagues, the people in the cubicle next to us or the, the, the students sitting next to us in, in a classroom? And, and how do we really think about or how do we, we train ourselves to look at them, look at people um, through that lens of love to see what God might see looking at them? And then to think about just how do we go about our, our daily living that will help us to, to do things? Because not all of us are going to be a Father Ford um, and, and start a whole movement that gets there 50 years later. And, and not all of us are going to work on the street um, like, like Monica does. And, um, but all of us can do something because all of us interact with other human beings um, virtually every day. Thank you, Greg. I'm going to wander down now very carefully from this perch. <laughs> Give some time for questions. Does anybody have any questions of Greg Winston? Um, one of the things that I have been concerned about for a long time is uh, how you approach um, cultural issues, in particular, you were speak, talking about education and third grade re reading levels. Um, I have a friend in New Orleans where I grew up who is a black man who's an immigrant from Central America, and he has a daughter, and he values her getting a good education very, very highly. But he is criticized by that, about that, from his black peers. And he's talked to me about that and they view him as acting white because he cares about education. Um, I feel very constrained as a white man even bringing the topic up um, because we don't seem to be able to have a dialogue about culture because it then gets named something else. Um, and I, I, I think most people in this room grew up with families who value education very highly and to me, that's the basis of economic success for most people. Um, how do we go about approaching that? That's a good question. The, we have a um, program called Youth on the Move, which is an out-of-school time program for middle and high school kids and um, who are all African-American. And sometimes we hear, we hear kids talking about other kids who are, who are more invested in their education, saying kind of just what, what, what you said, you know, that, that you're acting white or, or, or whatever the case. Um, but in my experience, and, and Ann could speak to this too, in, in my experience, most of the people that we work with, uh, most parents, are very passionate about their kids' education. And so, at least for us, we have not found that to be an, an impediment, um, that, that people really want what's best for for their kids. And, and slightly off that, but, but related, um, one of the things I really like about the Freedom School um, is that it uses, and this is a fancy word that I don't know very much about, but a liberatory pedagogy. Um, and it, it is designed for people who, um, it's designed to be used in, in, and to be culturally appropriate, let's put it that way. So when we're not using books and for second graders um, that have a bunch of rich white people as characters in the book. 
Um, there are books where people look like the, the, the people who are reading them, um, that the stories are about liberation, they're about um, lifting people up. And so everything about that program is designed to be, to be culturally appropriate. And it's one of the reasons why we really love that program. And it's one of the reasons why um, Ann and I are very careful that the people who, who lead the program and, and are actually engaging with the kids um, look like them as well. And so we, we hire um, African-American young adults from the community, and we bring in guests from, from the greater, um, greater Atlanta community, um, again, who, who look like the people that they're reading to. And, and we think that's really a critical part of, of that work. So I, I want to kind of add to that and see if you think that there's any value to my suggestion because I've been working with a lot of the uh, really uh, severely poverty-stricken areas up in uh, rural northwest Georgia. And I would say that I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, true what you said. It's, it's not a racial problem. It's a cultural problem because I see that the disenfranchised, multi-generational, poverty-stricken people who live up in the mountains don't see the value of education either. And I think part of it is because there's they're disenfranchised. They don't see the pathway. They don't see what it could possibly do for them because sure, they might get straight A's, but then where do they go from there? And so uh, I don't know if there's a way to maybe uh, create a pathway for people who are not in the entitled world to get value out of education so that they see the value of it. Does that make any sense? And I, well, I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm. My microphone is AWOL. Um, okay. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, now I've lost my train of thought because my microphone's going crazy. Um, so one of the things that we try to instill in people in our Youth on the Move program, and this sounds obvious, but is hope that if you don't believe that trying hard in school is going to make a difference, if you don't believe that going to college is going to change anything, or you don't even believe that you could ever get to college, then why, why work hard? Why, why strive for something? And so w part of that program is about um, lifting people up, to young people up, to believe that, that they have um, the capacity, that they're smart enough, um, that there are resources around them um, so that they can succeed. And we don't always, it doesn't always work, but um, it works often enough that we keep doing it. And, and I think, I, but I think you, it's a great point that, that, that um, one of the biggest challenges for people is a lack of hope. You mentioned that sometimes what we would term charity can actually be doing violence to people. Um, can you expand on that a little, maybe? explain what you mean, a few examples of, of that. Um, yeah, we, so one of the things that we, we're working hard on is what we simply call community engagement, which means that um, the ideas for what we do and the way that we do it comes come from the people in the community themselves. Um, recognizing that the, that the resources necessary for change already exist within the community. But a lot of times what charities do is they come into a community and they do what they think people need 
without listening to, to the people in the community. And so it's another way that, um, in our case, that, that affluent white people, let's say, are come into a community and impose their will on, on that community. And I think that is, a, a, is an act of violence. Um, and, and I'm not saying that the intention isn't good, but I, I think it does a disservice to people. And, and so we're, we're trying hard to, to really do more listening in the community and to, um, to raise up leadership within the community. We have this program called Fostering Family Leaders, which is a United Way program um, that's, that's a 10-week program that actually is designed to help um, adults to see and, and parents to see themselves as leaders in their family and in their community and that, that to, to recognize that they're the ones who have, can have the voice uh, to bring about change for their families. Got time for one more, but I just would offer my sermon at the 8 o'clock this morning. I shared about an image in a video you could see online today uh, of, a, of the struggle for mutuality, and that was one of Dr. King's themes. Actually, it's a theological theme, honestly. Uh, and the, the image you'll see is of a, a young man. He's probably a young teenager with a Native American veteran. And you, it's a painful video to see and I, and I shared that there's time and there's hope for that young man and for everybody uh, who struggles with that challenge of mutuality. But that's, that's the challenge for all of us, to, to grow into that more proximate life that is vulnerable uh, but allows us to see the other. We have not got time for one more, <laughs> but we have maybe a time if somebody's got a burning desire to share something. Um, Please uh, do uh, join me in, in thanking Greg uh, for his time this morning. Thank you. And I encourage you just to, if you feel so moved, there are wonderful opportunities to give of your gifts uh, in many parts of our city, including Emmaus House. And if you feel so moved, I'm going to whisk Greg away so he can preach again. Uh, but, you, but we can certainly put you in touch with Greg or simply Google uh, Emmaus House and he could uh, he'd happily uh, be in touch with you. Thank you.